0: Socio political issues,
1: one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan, Dan Sally. Sally.
0: Welcome to Your Home for the Politically Homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share this with one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth, and we need more friends. Over the last few episodes, we've been focusing on energy, and I must say I haven't done a very good job explaining why. And a lot of my obsession with energy comes from a conversation I had earlier this year with Dr. Carrie King of the University of Texas at Austin. Energy Institute. Now, Kerry's focus is on how energy affects the economy and more importantly, how it impacts political stability. And his book, The Economic Superorganism, lays out a compelling case based on centuries of data showing how declining prices in food and energy led to increased prosperity and increased political stability and how since 2000, when that trend stopped, things have become well like they are right now some of this conversation is going to be a repeat of some stuff we discussed back in june but i thought it worth repeating because it really ties together the past couple episodes and really a lot of the things we've been discussing over the past few months nicely i will be back at the end with my final thoughts You know that your name is phonetically similar to one of the founders and guitarists of Slayer. Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. You do. So you you know this? Yeah. Are you a Slayer fan, or was it just that? Or was uh, it just your name is? Yeah,
1: uh... I'm. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm not like the hugest Slayer fan in the world, but yeah, I like I like Slayer. I've been to a couple right. of Slayer concerts. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. So I. You know. I, yeah. Uh, and, oh, I, and I know, yeah, sort of the crowd I'm talking to if they were like, "Hey, man, Kerry
0: King," and they're like, yes. "Yeah." yeah. Well, so, so I'm a I'm a diehard metalhead. My first concert yeah. ever was Slayer and Motorhead, and I went up until Slayer stopped touring. I used to go to see them every time. But I remember when I heard Kerry King. I didn't bring it up in our first conversation, <laughs> but then when I was googling when I was googling your name to try and get your op-ed back. up, Carrie King popped up there, his yeah. picture right next to you. So it was yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, so,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. It was really, just, just a tad different than me.
0: Just a shade. Just a shade. Yeah. A shade. yeah, and, uh, yeah. 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 yeah the first um,
1: concert I had a choice to go to when I was a kid. Uh, went to it. Me and my brothers went to Iron Maiden. That was in a town near... Oh, uh, man. Near so, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, why are we talking about energy, carry? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah.
1: <laughs> that's,
0: that's another episode. That's another episode. Mm-hmm. I promise you, listener, we'll have the love we'll yeah. metal episode. But but yeah, so I, I asked you to come back because of the op-ed you put out in the Hill. And I'm going to ask this first question with the understanding that if you already listened to this series and you listened to the episode of the Jed Dorsheimer, you're already going to know this, but Carrie, I'm going to ask you to, to say this as well, which is when economic models or when they talk about energy in economic models, what are most models getting wrong?
1: So, yeah, the normal economic growth
0: model is thinking that economic growth is a
1: function of quantity of capital and a quantity of labor. And maybe they would throw a quantity of energy in there like primary total primary energy consumed. They might factor that in in the similar framework, but it's just factoring in the number as a time series of energy consumption without any sort of actual physical property number or anything that makes it look different than just the monetary value of capital or the amount of labor hours. So it's just kind of thrown in as another quote-unquote factor of production, and they would normally treat it as only being as important as to how much of a percentage of GDP do we spend on energy. And that's a low percentage. So it makes it look like energy is not a particularly relevant factor in the economy. fit if we have less of it.
0: I know in your, in your op-ed, one of the things you said is most economic models say, or, or most models account for energy at four to 6% of expenditure. And it assumes that people spend, let's say, less on energy, that's not a huge impact on the economy. But the reality is the whole economy functions on it. Effectively, energy is 100% of GDP, if you look at it correctly.
1: Yeah, one way I like to think about it is if if we're spending 6% of GDP on energy, then things are maybe roughly semi-normal and and okay. But if we were to spend 8% or 9%, you know, depending on how you count it, that's the difference between a recession and not. And so the other kind of economic, normal economic framework seems to not understand or not make a distinction between the sort of threshold between growth and not by a very small percentage change in how much energy costs. And, and to your notion that energy is 100% of GDP, the research that's been done on this that got spearheaded by Robert Ayers, for the most part, looks at kind of a specific calculation of energy that we would call useful work. And that's essentially the energy that goes into end-use devices, the quantity of energy like joules, multiplied times an efficiency at which that device converts that, say, potential energy into work. And that work would be the f- form of electricity output, perhaps, uh, uh, the radiation coming out of light bulbs, the mechanical motion coming out of engines and motors, So that's to say, if you take all the energy that ends up in these devices times their efficiency, you would get an estimate for what we'd call useful work. And that useful work is what seems to map very closely one-to-one GDP, which gives you this whole notion that the economy is, as some of us say, a superorganism or a heat engine. Some people might say it takes in energy. It has to consume this energy in some device, uh, Mm -hmm. capital, a machine. And that machine does work. And this is... At some level that's what the economy is and that's what the economy does
0: the analogy i kind of used is breaking down energy merely in terms of what percentage of spending is dedicated to it is sort of like assessing the value of your blood sugar to its mass when compared to your entire body it's like yes it's probably a very small percentage of total mass but if you don't have any blood sugar you're in deep doo-doo and is that a fair enough analogy, would you say?
1: I like where you're going, and I'm going to say I'm disappointed that I haven't sort of come up with the food or blood sugar analogy in the body myself, so I'm going to steal that from you.
0: You but, can. Yeah,
1: it's some notion of, maybe some notion of that, right? Uh, you know, how much food, quote unquote, or, or something like this do I have in my body or, you know, things that, uh, that our body cell processes convert, convert glucose into into and, and action, you know what percentage of that, yeah, is our body, and you're like, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not that much, right? But yeah, without yeah. it, without if we don't keep eating food, right? I'm clear, my body's clearly not going to function. So yeah, I think we should work with your analogy there on the on the food and.
0: Cool. I'm glad you know, I I'm glad I could glad I could bring <laughs> that bring that into the vernacular. So one of the things I found most interesting about your op-ed, and this is in line with a lot of things that a lot of themes that we've talked about on this podcast over the past. Year and a half or so is really how you kind of start at World War II and and break down history into different phases and a lot of what we end up talking about on this podcast, whether it's related to the breakdown of the two major parties, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's monetary policy, all kind of starts then because there was a huge reset at that point. and And I'd love you to kind of walk walk us through that. So you break down post-World War II history, really, into three phases and three different stages of energy consumption. And the first one you mentioned is phase one, which happens after World War II and goes on until the 70s. And can you talk about what happened during that phase? So how did things look politically? How did things look economically as they relate to to energy?
1: Right. And this is something... Yeah, you know, I'm kind of just highlighting or summarizing things in my book and the chapter seven of my book, The Economic Superorganism, goes over these phases. But and one reason why the starting time frame is chosen is kind of as you suggest, this is when essentially most modern data sets we have in the United States become quite relatively complete, start, starting after World War Two. So the phase one is essentially roughly the first three decades after World War Two. And the things going on are essentially the highest rate of increase in energy consumption in human history, not just in the United States, but globally, but the United States is a big driver of that. The highest rate of energy consumption per person in the history of the United States, and probably the world as well. Highest rates of GDP increase. And so that's kind of just the data, the energy data, and the rate of increase. So the rate of growth is unprecedented and as some of us like to say this rate of increase is sort of the anomaly in terms of how fast it is within the anomaly of the fossil fuel era so it's super fast in the super fast era and what coincides with that is roughly constant debt to gdp ratios in the united states with if you look at total private and government debt the highest income equalities and the people that studies political polarization, just in terms of how congressional parties vote, there's relatively low polarization during this time. Uh, of course, it's after all the, the New Deal. So the New Deal really kind of drove a lot of polarization low. Everybody was kind of you know committed to fighting the depression in, in that sense. And so we have these metrics of equality that are high and we have these metrics of growth that are very high. And in some sense, specifying this phase makes us wonder, you know, how much are politicians thinking back to that? and thinking, can we just go back to that time, you know, the 50s and 60s? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you think, well, why should we be able to, or why should we not be able to go back to that kind of a time? But that's, yeah, so that's really phase one. High equality, high growth, high prosperity.
0: And one thing I, I want to clue the listener in on as well is that 3% increase in energy consumption. Because this gets back to something that I talked about with Jed, which is the idea that, economic growth comes from energy surplus or from greater consumption of energy. You need to consume more energy in order for the economy to grow in real terms. And so that's all going on. Then we hit the 1970s. And so tell me what what happens there.
1: Right. And so, yeah, mostly going to be just summarizing the U.S. data here. But yeah. for OECD countries, uh, maybe roughly the same. So, yeah, we get to the 1970s. Of course, there's peak. Oil production at the time in 1970, 73 is the Arab oil embargo. 1974 is OPEC oil price rise, which is able to become very influential because the U.S. essentially cannot produce more oil at a whim, kind of full capacity of oil production at that time. And so in 1973, the rate of increase of energy consumption slows, actually decreases for a few years and is flat. For maybe a decade. Energy consumption per person then starts to go flat, and it's flat all during this phase two. So this phase two pretty much starts in 1973. Energy consumption per person is flat until around 2000. I just kind of chose the start of my quote-unquote phase three at that time, mainly for this particular reason. And in the middle of this phase two, so in the 80s, you know, the debt levels start to increase rapidly in the United States. So total debt private and public starts to increase relative to GDP and the wage inequality starts to decline. So during phase one, the wage share, the percentage of compensation or percentage of GDP going to wages is roughly flat and then starts declining in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's just wages. If you want to think about a slightly more comprehensive metric, which is total compensation of employees, which includes wages plus pension and health benefits. So that broader metric During phase one, that metric is increasing as a share of GDP, so more of the total GDP is going to workers and benefits plus wages. And then once you get to phase two, it's roughly flat. There's a constant amount of GDP going to workers as wages plus benefits. So on both of those metrics, they change in trend. Wage share goes down and the wage plus benefits goes flat. So there's a shift in how income or the proceeds of the economy are allocated to workers versus owners of capital going from phase one to phase two. And a lot of people think it's coincidence and it's a policy choice. And I think, yes, I, it definitely is a policy choice. Companies have to choose how much to pay their uh, workers and what kind of profits they think they can hold. And that's predicated on the tax environment or you know whatever the political environment is as well. But my question is, why did there was a much more shift to deregulation in the 1970s as opposed to before the 1970s and a shift away from more power to companies instead of unions for bargaining power for wages this kind of thing that started happening in the 70s so my kind of question in my head is why did that stuff just happen to start after this cessation and energy increase and i don't see it as a coincidence and things like reagan and thatcher coming in and becoming popular so i kind of see it as a as a reaction of the economy to energy constraints. Yeah. Maybe not the only thing that could have ever happened, but that's my hypothesis about this.
0: One of the things we talked about in an earlier episode was Nixon's choice when he decided to close the gold window. Because at that point in time, the US had a decision to make, which was they either could raise taxes, they could cut spending, they could do both or they could close the gold window. And the most politically expedient thing to do was to close the gold window, which totally removed the break on U.S. debt. And so I think we'll get into this as we get further into the conversation. But, you know, there are a ton of different signals coming at that time because you have the closing of the gold window. You have the oil shock. You have a bunch of things happening that make it very, the kind of muddy the waters. I, I think one thing also worth noting during this phase two period is that this is really when American politics shifts from the get-along phase to one of increasing polarization, uh, a lack of cooperation. There's one study actually out there that documents voting across party lines and it falls off a cliff in the 80s. One thing I wanted to ask you too is, I know there's probably some people listening who are thinking to themselves, okay, well, you had the oil shock, you had this move towards efficiency, of course energy consumption or the increase in energy consumption is going to decline. Could you answer that question? Cause I'm sure there's one or two people listening who are thinking that right now.
1: Yeah. So my, I think my kind of general thought is no, not necessarily, certainly not, not at the 1970s. So I think, you know, was anybody proactively thinking about consuming less energy leading up to 1970 or 1971 or like, yeah, when we get to about 350 million BTUs a year, consumption in the U.S., that's going to be the number. That's going to be the number that's Mm -hmm. enough, and we're just going to stop right there. And you're like, no, nobody was thinking about that. You're just going to try to continue to go. So the cessation in this trend is definitely not predetermined or predicated on efficiency investments. On the industrial side, in some sense, they're investing in efficiency investments all the time on the side of production, uh, factories, and uh, this kind of thing. And what became the focus of efficiency in the 70s was a lot more so the end-use side or consumers, Mm -hmm. households, as well as continued industry as well. And I mean, I see it as a, you know, the energy constraint was there was going to be less consumption by some end-users one way or another. Mm -hmm. And you you can call that conservation, like you're just going to consume less. Say, if you didn't get more efficient or your choice is, You're going to consume less and you can get more efficient, which means you can have, let's just say, roughly the same services with less energy if you make an extra, you know, investment in efficiency. Like, you know, you buy a new car that now gets 20 miles to the gallon instead of 10. That became, in some sense, an obvious thing to do. But you are not going to be able to maintain a 10 mile per gallon car and continue to consume higher amounts of energy. So so the. I think there was a consumption constraint, and then the obvious choice was, well, if I have this constraint, I might as well consume it more efficiently.
0: Mm, okay, understood, understood. So it's really the resource constraint is what's driving efficiency, not the other way around.
1: Yeah, as far as even a you know, sort of a conventional economist would say, yeah, you impose constraints, and you would drive the technology towards dealing with that constraint, right? If economics yeah. is supposed to be an allocation due to scarcity, if energy scarce, well, you're going to start focusing on energy a lot more you mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Okay. Cool. So we've gone from World War II to the 70s, and now we're going to get to 2000. This is this is the part of your book as well that I just found the most fascinating, and I want I want to talk about this. Can you start off by talking about what happened with the trend of food and energy expenditures in 2000? Because I think that's something that's something I want to make sure the listener walks away with and, and understands.
1: So yeah, if you look over the sort of long period of history from pre-industrial economies to current time or industrial economies, one of the most defining trends is a market decline in the relative cost of energy. So take all the money we spend on food and energy and divided by GDP is just a sort of broad metric of cost in pre-industrial England and the UK it was 60 or 70 percent. So all the money spent on energy and food, including food for people doing work in the fields, that's 60 or 70 percent of GDP. And then in the industrial age, it gets shrunk down to well less than 20 percent, 15 percent in modern economies today. And so this declining trend is sort of an indication that you are finding energy or producing food more cheaply, and you can continue to do this. And the question sort of comes into your head when i looked at this trend in 2000 is this cost of food and energy is essentially declining and declining for a 100 years or more for industrialization and then in 2000 it starts to stagnate it goes up a little bit until the financial crisis in 2008 bobbles around and it's kind of bobbled around since then but it's still roughly the same level of how much do we spend on food and energy relative to gdp in the united states and i haven't really calculated this as much globally anymore but I presume, roughly globally in the U.S. has, for the most part, as cheap access to food and energy as as any country. So that's a trend that's been going on for, let's just say, 20 or 22 years now, where this core indicator of growth has no longer continued. It doesn't necessarily mean energy is getting more expensive, but it means it's not getting cheaper. And, And the question is, you know, how much of the growth system, finance, debt financing, uh, how much of kind of how all the economy operates was sort of predicated or used to be predicated on this part of the economy getting smaller and smaller. It's not actually getting smaller, it's just getting smaller as a proportion of the total. So, you know, the energy and food sector gets bigger, but everything else gets bigger faster. But yeah, until 2000. And, you know, other similar trends, at least for the United States, as we roughly consume the same amount of primary energy as we did in the year 2000, early, early 2000s that's unique in the history of the united states so that gets put into context of how it was that an important trend to understand a different kind of economic policy particularly like setting of interest rates after the financial crisis the interest rates have never been pegged zero for over a decade and there were not negative interest bonds out there and these things started occurring as this sort of incentive to try to force people to invest money in something productive. And this energy and food cost relative to GDP is potentially a metric that says we're having a really hard time finding investments that are as productive as they were in the past because we've just kind of really gained a limit on how cheap energy and food mm-hmm. could be. And so that's kind of the way it appears. And my book subtitle is about competing narratives of fossil and renewable energy and in the context of this stagnation in energy and food costs for 20 years, maybe it helps explain this, these competing narratives about renewables are the best or fossils are the best or, or what have you is that neither of them are capable of dealing with this particular trend. They, they, neither of them are able to make the energy get cheaper than it is. So mm-hmm. it's not that one is better or, or than the other from a physical basis. And there's all kinds of properties of them, but they're both struggling or at least all technologies we have would struggle to make this fundamental cost cheaper. And if we can't make it cheaper, this is probably a limit to growth, and this is probably an expression of boundaries to growth of
0: the economy. One of the other things I'll say, just to put a plug in for your book as well, is that in your book, you have centuries of economic history from England that show this downward trend in terms of the total cost of food and energy relative to GDP. I give credit and that, to Roger
1: Fouquet. So he's the one, yeah, London formerly London School of Economics. So I just stole his data and plotted it. But yeah, go ahead.
0: <laughs> okay, cool, cool. We'll 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 give credit where credit is due.
1: Yeah.
0: And and I think that's very interesting because it, it sent me down a path of really exploring how much of expansion of democracy and expansion of civil liberties are the result of this access to cheap energy how much of it is the result of the fact that we don't need to be as nasty to each other because there's plenty of energy and plenty of food to go around. The good news is there's not a strong tie, so it means that we can potentially find our way out of this without tearing each other apart, but that's a conversation for a later date. The one thing I want to I, I just, I summarize for the listener to make sure they're following along, which is, again, if we go back to what we talked about with Jed, in order for the economy to grow, there has to be an energy surplus. And what we see in the period after World War II to about the oil shock is an increase in energy consumption of about three percent. There's an energy surplus coming in, economy's growing, oil shock hits, and between the oil shock and two thousand, increase in the rate of consumption of energy is much lower, about one percent, I think was the figure I saw from your your op-ed. And again, we start to see an expansion of debt. We start to see an expansion of income inequality, a reduction in the median wage when compared to the highest wage earners. And that goes until the year 2000. Year 2000, net energy increase is zero. That trend of a continuous decline in the cost of energy and food as a total percentage of GDP stalls out. The increase in energy consumption stagnates, so that's at zero. And we start to see some economic reverberations there. Yeah, you know, one of the other things I, I talk about a lot on this podcast is really if we look at the last 22 years of the American economy, it's better described in terms of economic activity than economic growth, because if you look from 2000 till the housing crisis we have an economy largely fueled by shoddy mortgages when that explodes we have an economy largely fueled by quantitative easing and well and then covid stimulus steps in and is it too far of a leap to say that with the with energy consumption or the increase in energy consumption at zero that the value of of work the value of a unit of work by one human being is diminished Meaning effectively, if, there, if there's no increase in energy, their productivity sort of stalls out. And so the economy increasingly has to rely on debt as a way to create the impression of growth.
1: But in some sense, I might, you might, I might interpret a debt increase as, or at least debt relative to GDP increase, as not getting the returns that you thought you were going to get. So <laughs> if you were getting the returns you thought you were going to get, you might be able to keep a constant ratio or decline it. Yeah. Or something like this. And then, so there's a delay for a while and you're like, yeah, I didn't I didn't quite get the returns I, I thought I was going to get. So, so we do have these, as far as I know, unprecedented kind of actions by the central banks taking on assets, you know, buying bonds, I think in some cases buying securities directly through the financial crisis and, and other kinds of areas and essentially taking on a, a balance sheet, if you will, of the Fed of ownership of assets that you know, is trillions of dollars now. It's not quite $10 trillion now, I don't think. But that didn't really exist before 2008, that level, that, that order of magnitude. So is that a consequence of an economy that can't grow because it's energy constrained? Mm-hmm. I, I think that hypothesis is valid and it's sort of up to people like myself and others to try to prove this out as much as possible and to have the economic frameworks that sort of prove it out, I think I think it's the most plausible case. And the the conventional way to view things is that this quantity of money and debt doesn't fundamentally matter and affect the economy. Yet it's clearly an expression (laughs) it's clearly an expression of things going on in the economy. And people know that interest payments on mortgages and cars matter for their lives. So yeah, if you have an economic framework that says this isn't supposed to matter because one dollar I lend to someone is one dollar they got. So I got, I gave up minus one, and they got plus one, so it cancels out as zero. Yet the interest rates, the interest doesn't cancel out. So yeah. if if that debt is becoming a problem, one way to make the interest cancel out is to have an interest rate at zero. Then the debt doesn't matter. But as soon as you want the interest rate to not be zero, and to get rid of speculation, and because money's roughly free, well then interest interest payments start to matter, and they're not a a zero-sum game. There is a direction of flow to the people that have the money away from the people that don't. So that's just another pressure towards more income inequality.
0: The other thing I think we should weave in here, too, is what's going on in terms of political polarization, because, of course, things start around the 70s. And The two things Nixon does during his administration is he leverages white anxiety over racial unrest and does that to court Southern Democrats who are disaffected over the civil rights movement. And he uses the Vietnam war as another tool to really divide society. And so this, it's sort of like a proto culture war in a way kind of starts this divisive nature of politics that goes into the eighties goes, gets worse into the nineties. And then of course, you know, now is what it is after the financial crisis, of course, is when populism starts rising. So the economy is just not working for people. And so this is where you start to see the Tea Party rise up and the Occupy movement rise up, which eventually morphs into things like Antifa and, and the MAGA movement and so on. And I again, I'm saying this just to kind of narrate what's happening as this is all folding out. I, I want to jump back to something, though, because net energy consumption or the increase in energy consumption stalls out in the U.S. What about the rest of the world? So what about, for example, China, where a lot of manufacturing starts to happen? All uh,
1: right. So well, even To today, uh, from the standard energy population data, energy per person is still increasing, and certainly in in 2000 it really perked up a bit due to China essentially changing their economic structure and engaging in the global economy and global trade in a new way and joining the World Trade Organization. So that definitely ramped up energy consumption from what it was the the rate increase from what it was a previous few years, and you of course open up to a huge number of potential workers here hundreds of millions (laughs) of workers in china which are when you have over a billion people you've got a large supply that weren't in the industrial economy per se so yeah that's the downward pressure on wages globally you could say that globalization really started kicking off in the 70s if you got energy as a constraint maybe companies start exploring all kinds of ways to reduce whatever cost it is to deal with the energy constraint so i look at the sort of polarization of politics today and I think this this is what we would expect I'm not so much upset about it I mean I guess I'm upset about it uh, the main thing I'm upset about is that people don't seem to recognize this is what they should expect and because this is what they should expect they should actively think to counteract it and state this fact and so at, at some point in my book I referred to a book by a Peter Churchin book called Secular Cycles and he, he's talking about pre-industrial civilizations. But you know these cycles of growth and decline could be three, four hundred, five hundred years in the sort of civilizations he studied, England China. And this is what <laughs> this is what sort of this historical perspective tells you. Oh, when you when you reach the peak of your civilization, you start to hit this constraint on growth, and then you have a certain number of let's just say relatively rich people that are in control or the elites, if you will, they call them, and they're fighting to survive and maintain their elite status. And there's not enough. There's not enough stuff to have this many elites anymore. And so you could argue this is the politicians, this is upper middle classes or middle classes struggling to maintain this status. And you end up with the things you discussed, more polarization, more populism. And so I look at this and I think, yeah, this is what we would expect to happen when you're reaching the the limits to growth of your society. So we shouldn't be upset about it. We should expect it. And we should say, oh, okay, I, I think I understand why this is happening. This has happened historically. Let's recognize that. And that means it's not about us. Or it's not about me as a person. It's not about an individual elected official necessarily. It's just this is the situation we've been thrust in as a society at this point. So if we get enough people to just recognize that situation, then people might say, oh, it's not that this you are a horrible person on the other side of the aisle. It's that we just happen to be, we're living in this difficult time and if we recognize that we will have to think of new ways to deal with it.
0: There's a, a political scientist, Harold Dwight Laswell, and he says that politics is about who gets what, when and how. And I think the natural reaction when there isn't enough to go around is to find an outgroup. And in a democratic society, especially one where there's only a two party system, it's really easy to define that outgroup as the other party. And now especially in america the parties have become so geographically sorted it's unlikely that your neighbor disagrees with you to a large extent chances are you're living near people who think like you politically so it makes a real real easy thing to leverage my last guest was a guy named mark nelson who's a big pro nuclear power advocate how do you feel about nuclear as a way to offer a reliable energy source that is in relatively abundant supply right now?
1: I think Luke, if we want to really go for serious about going low carbon, I think you're going to want at least at minimum maintain a, a level nuclear fleet that we have, which means you'd have to build some more to replace some eventually and build it out further. So. I've never really studied in detail why people will say, oh, it's regulatory red tape and this kind of thing, why it costs so much more in the U.S. or the Western Europe than other places in the world. So China and other Middle East, are they're embarking on new nuclear installations. But yeah, in general, I, I think it's on the table. It should be there, even at its current high cost that it takes to build one in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably going to pan out to be, if you're really trying to get the last, 10 or 20% of carbon emissions down on the electric grid or just the total energy system, either one, yeah. nuclear is going to start to look pretty good. And yeah, the problem is if you if it takes a while for people to figure that out by the time they figure that out, then you can't just like build one tomorrow. So yeah, there's still going to yeah. reasons not to want to engage in it because they're like, I don't want to wait 10 years. You're like, well, that's why you have to start now. So.
0: You really need a 15 year time horizon if you're going to invest in nuclear. And from again, from my conversation with him, and it's more a matter, I think, of political will and po- politicians making a priority, which is that's in this environment is, is a little tricky. Yeah. I think um, in the
1: U.S., I guess the catch is because of most everything is kind of market oriented. It has to be monopoly utilities or the government's just going to have to pay somebody to build one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the
1: governments to well, have to it, own a or, a or a regulated utility.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll say this, too, for the folks who didn't listen to the episode with Mark, but what's going on now too, is because renewables are subsidized, renewables only work alongside fossil fuel power plants. So you need a power plant you can turn on and off when the wind isn't blowing and when the sun isn't shining and fossil fuels are really good for that. And so because you have subsidies coming in, the energy actually appears cheaper. And so the market signals are all kind of thrown off and nuclear it doesn't thrive in that environment because it's a constant source of energy so you can't really cycle down and cycle up a nuclear reactor when again because the wind's blowing really strong and you don't need the energy so it's they, they kind of compete with each other i know in our last conversation one of the things we talked about too is like energy realism versus you know energy idealism in a way this idea that we're going to get these efficient windmills and these super-efficient solar panels and we're just going to be able to take ourselves off fossil fuels with a gust of wind and an array and of sunlight. And I'll, I'll ask this in two parts. First off, if we were to really embrace nuclear, would that create sort of the energy idealist solution where we can move off of fossil fuels, we can decarbonize the grid without having to sacrifice energy consumption?
1: I'd probably say no at this point with at least the current versions of the technology of nuclear power plants. If we make smaller ones, maybe it becomes more viable in the sense that you can shut some down during the spring and fall months and just kind of not even operate them rather than sort of have to keep them operating. Of course, there's ways to design them to ramp up and ramp down more, to electrolyze water or generate hydrogen when there's less electricity demand and all this kind of stuff in general the future is more coordination of all kinds of power generation not less coordination and nuclear Mm -hmm. would fall into that just because at least historically it doesn't ramp up and down that much i'm probably less antagonistic towards renewables for the statements you had earlier in the sense of i just kind of view them as their technologies they got certain characteristics and even without the subsidies i think it would be getting a lot of them installed and okay. the hard part about nuclear is, let's just say, current oil and gas in the United States, which is pretty much dominated by hydraulic fracturing now, tight reservoirs, which means their proceeds, their revenues, and oil and gas extraction comes out in the first three or four years. So mm-hmm. the subsidies certainly help you get the returns on renewables within single-digit numbers of years. So you don't have to wait long to get your return. And the oil and gas is that way, just kind of by nature now, going after the tight reservoirs. But nuclear is just so long to wait to get your return back. It's not a you're not going to get the return in, in five years. If you got a big subsidy, I mean there are tax credits for nuclear as well in the Inflation Reduction Act. But I don't think they're the scale to build out in the nuclear fleet 50% more size. So it's just if you're market oriented, you're going to have a hard time with the current nuclear design. So that's why there's I guess a lot of hope got for the small modulars and these kinds of things. You might still need a long payback time but it's a smaller quantity of money that is at risk there Got because it. you can just build a smaller plant when you say more coordination too what do you mean by that so kind of as you say there's just more things that are going to have to be available to turn on and turn off to deal with the, the future electric grid yeah primarily because of integrating more renewables but it also could be yeah just to maintain nuclear plant of viability if you have times of the grid let's just say here in texas we might you know stress it you know, what's our lowest net load time of the year where i think it may be getting close to just a little bit over 10 gigawatts or 10 or 15 gigawatts when you have a peak demand in the summer of potentially 80. so
0: mm-hmm. it could
1: be times in the spring and the fall where we're, you know well below 20. and if you're getting that low we don't have that much nuclear let's just say you got about 5.5 gigawatts but you might be starting press- putting pressure on a nuclear power plant Continuing to operate at some point. So, if you give the nuclear power plant something else to do besides just put electricity on the grid, such as electrolyze water and generate hydrogen, well, it just keeps humming along, but its power is no longer going to the grid. It's providing some other service or it's powering who it. knows what, direct air capture, you know, whatever. So, you just start having to have other kinds of loads. And this is the sort of the crypto mining, you know, explanation for how great crypto mining is. It's, I'm Neutral on the benefits of crypto mining in general, but the thought is, hey, you got extra generation and that you have to deal with, and you don't want to have to curtail. Well, then, hey, mine some crypto. And for us energy analyst people, we would always be thinking, oh, if I have this quote-unquote renewables or nuclear power that would have to be curtailed because of such high renewables, we would, you know, you typically think, oh, I'm going to store this in batteries. How much batteries can we have? What's the cost of that? Or you know, or generate hydrogen. And then crypto comes along and says, no, we'll just do this. And so, uh, so those are the kind of things And when there's times of low renewables output, then yeah,
0: I'm just going to have to have more coordination of demand response. You've got me thinking of some like masterclass in the fall of America, 500 years from now, where there's a whole chapter on Dogecoin. It's <laughs> so, so there's one, one last question for you, which is, if we assume that we're living in a period of energy stagnation, if not energy decline, are there policy decisions we can make, or personal decisions we can and should make to ensure that we survive these the, the challenges that are coming up? Because it seemed to me, if we if we go back to everything we talked about, the reaction of society towards energy stagnation has been polarization, has been a turn against each other. And if this pattern continues, it's only going to get worse. And so figuring out a way to deal with the current situation, I think, is going to be critical. So what what are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I'm a part of a couple loose groups that sort of debate this this question, and I certainly don't claim to have the greatest answer. But some of the ideas that come up are there might be a natural tendency for people to cooperate more or bond more with people locally. You sort of realize this problem that is upon us of less energy and perhaps less economic prosperity is not actually a responsibility of any one person or any one person's individual actions so much. I mean, this is kind of the main story, right? If you work hard in America and you do well, you can get ahead. And the further we get into this, people are realizing, you're like, oh, wait, that's not actually the case. I, I have worked hard. I've worked ahead just like somebody did 50 years ago, but I am not in the same position as a baby boomer, right? And it doesn't have anything to do with they didn't work as hard or they didn't try as hard. It's just the environment they are growing up in is is just fundamentally more constrained and a difficult yeah. one yeah. Uh, to grow up in. So there is some thought that a lot of people have. Oh, we yeah, have the energy consumption goes lower. The world, quote unquote, gets smaller. People go back to, you know, hanging out with each other and being a little bit more neighborhood cooperative, like uh, like we were before. We grew so much. People, you know, you knew you knew your neighbors more, or even in a really long time ago, you you knew everybody was in your village and you did all kinds of different jobs. So some viewpoints are like, no, yeah, you a, a person can be less specialized. They'll be they'll do more tasks. You'll work less. You'll get less sort of wealth in the modern sense, uh, money and, and Material goods, but you might have more on the personal day to day lifestyle side. You know, a lot of people don't like the word degrowth, the degrowth movement, but I think this is the basic idea that they're saying hey, if you have a particularly, if we think about how to degrow in a coordinated manner, it will be much better than if we just don't think about it at all. And so you get ideas of actually scheduling to work less hours per year, instead of having some people who work full-time and some people that are fired. They're like, is it better if everybody's just working less hours, but nobody's really fired? That way you don't have a small percentage of the population that's really in a precarious and another side that's just trying to hang on and keep their job because they don't want to become one of the precariat. So from a policy perspective, that seems like a natural thing to do to me. And I mean, I think Germany, I mentioned in my book during the financial crisis, you know, has more of this model where the the union people are part of the board of directors of the companies. And when they come up with a, an economic crisis situation, you know, how do you want to deal with this? When you have that kind of representation, the, the answer wasn't, well, let's just figure out the percentage of people we have to fire and draw names out of a hat or who knows what. The answer was, no, let's yeah. let's try not to fire anyone. Let's just have each person work less and everybody kind of understands why we're doing this. And that's a better situation. So the US kind of has the well, I'll fire you and then when times you're good, I'll hire you back. And then you're like, oh, well, how's you know, that,
0: that yeah that doesn't
1: yeah. seem like you're treating them like a person. So
0: <laughs> yeah. It's getting back to maybe refocusing on how we divide up the pie. It's getting back to yeah, any, yeah. who gets so, what we're yeah. now.
1: Yeah, yeah. So a yeah. little bit of pie to everyone more. I think a little bit more of a focus on the challenges of Wealth distribution, income distribution, and say, okay, can we actually focus on that a little bit more, even in the, even in the context of constraints on growth, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If we if we were going to be able to grow our way out of this to equality, that would have happened over the last forty years. <laughs> we would have seen some proceeds yeah. out of that. I think people realize, oh, that's not happening, and that's why we're getting all these movements you're speaking of. And of course, COVID made people realize that the governments in control of their money supply can. Choose to allocate money in a particular way if they really want to. So it's kind of opened up the minds there.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving a review. As always, this podcast grows by word of mouth. You can find a link to purchase Carrie's book in the show notes. And you can also sign up for the YDHTY email newsletter where I talk about this episode and other issues of the day. Couple things that really jumped out at me in this conversation. The first, of course, is the tight correlation between energy surplus and economic growth. This is something we talked about in the episode a few weeks ago with Jed Dorsheimer. It's something we revisited here and especially how that increase in energy consumption happened to coincide with a period of relative political stability and how that stability started to decay as energy supplies became more scarce. And it got me thinking that the role of the government should be to promote political stability And if political stability is dependent on economic stability and economic stability is dependent on energy surplus, then really it should be the goal of the U.S. government to make sure we have a stable energy supply. And as Kerry cited, renewables and fossil fuels on their own or together aren't going to be enough. We may need to add a resource like nuclear power. Now, part two of that is Kerry's impression that there isn't enough energy out there to continuously increase our rate of consumption. And we may have to look at an economy that's structured in a different way. I've talked here and there about how we really need to take another look at the role of Americans as consumers versus citizens. And I think maybe a good question we should ask is, do we want to continue to be a consumer-oriented society or do we want to look at different ways of allocating resources, different ways of sharing the wealth, and different goals when we talk about the term progress? All heavy stuff. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So, pop me an email at heydan, h e y d a n at y d h t y dot com. As always, music courtesy of Queller Tech. Ydhty's director of continuous improvement is the admiral Admiral Adam Yaffe. Ydhty is produced in loving memory of the Big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Go